Welcome to the Life Chapters podcast, real women, real stories. Hi, I'm Stacey, and I am super passionate about showing everyday women like you that they really do have a story to share. In my opinion, everyone deserves to be heard. And on this podcast, you will get to meet some pretty fabulous women who have amazing stories to tell. Some of the stories you hear might trigger you, but they're all spoken by the women who lived them. Some of them will make you smile. Some of them might make you cry. Hello, and thank you for joining me again. I am going to continue the story of the morning Chris died. It's quite timely. I'm recording this on the 3rd of December, but it's going to go live on the 21st of December, which is two days after the eighth anniversary of Chris's death. So December is always one of those months for me where I feel like I'm leading up to that date. And then once the date passes, I can breathe again. And over the years, um, having having a child, having Rona has meant that I can't put Christmas on pause. I have to get into the Christmas spirit and Over the years, I've started to enjoy that a lot more, but it still plays on my mind. And there is still that date in the calendar that I have to get to, and then I have to get past. So I wanted to tell you a little bit more of the story of that morning, because there's something that happened that morning that really should not have happened. And it really set the tone for the first couple of days after Chris died. It was as if the the rug had been pulled out from under my feet. I was already in this state of shock. The paramedics had told me my husband had died. And in Scotland, and this is as, as best my knowledge, in Scotland, when there is a sudden death in the house, in the home, then the police are informed and it's a normal procedure for them to sort of come and check that there is no strange or odd circumstances. So the paramedics absolutely have to do their job. So they reported the death to the police. So very soon there was a young constable at my front door that morning in his police uniform. I would maybe hazard a guess he was early 20s. So he came in and had a conversation with the paramedics and he then reported back to his control room on his radio and he reported to his superiors to the people in the control room and he said the words I'm I'm at I won't tell you the address but I'm at this address um paramedics are called and I'm here at the scene of a suspicious death he said the word suspicious instead of sudden. One word. And therein started a chain of events that he could not stop and nobody else could stop. So because he had reported that it was a suspicious death, the the next thing that happened was I had two detectives turn up at my front door and I was told we could not touch anything. The house had become a crime scene in their book. And they told me that they had to clear the house 
and they had to bring forensic officers in and nobody could touch the body. Nobody could do anything. And I wasn't allowed to have my mobile phone. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. And there was just this chain of events that started. Now, I'm a pretty strong woman. I always have been. I know my own mind. And I took one look at this detective who did not have any ounce of sympathy in his body because he automatically had been told that this was a suspicious death and he was coming to a crime scene. And, oh, look, there's the wife. And he had this air of, well, I am going to find out the facts, so therefore I don't need to speak to the wife. And he was a very, um, I'll say he was a very arrogant police officer. Um, I do not even know his name. Um, but I I answered him back and he, and I said to him that under no circumstances was anything happening because Rona was asleep upstairs and her dad had just died. So I said to them that I am going to go and wake my daughter. I'm going to tell her what has happened and I am going to see what she wants to do. And until I have that conversation, you can stand outside and wait for me to deal with this situation. I went upstairs, I told Rona, she absolutely was devastated. And we decided together that she did want to go to school. It was the last day of term before Christmas holidays. So she was going to get up, she was going to get dressed, she was going to have breakfast. And our house, the stairs were in the living room. So the only way she was going to get down the stairs and get out the house was she was going to have to come through the living room and I was not going to have that full of police or investigators or anything. I was going to try and make it as normal as possible. So I came back down the stairs and I told this detective that that's what was happening. And he had a look of thunder on his face. He was he was ready to argue with me. But I just told him, I said, that's how it's happening. And you will just have to wait. You will just have to wait an hour before you can kick in your procedures because this has to happen for my daughter. So that is what happened. Rona got up and dressed and off to school. And, and I had phoned a, a friend whose who's grown-up daughter worked at the school. And I had sort of told them the situation so that at least somebody was looking out for Rona that morning when she got to school. So then this detective decided he was, he was going to stick to his procedures. So the next thing that happened was I found myself in the back of a police car being taken to the police station for a conversation. And that's, that's what I was told. It was a conversation. At which point my house was being left in charge of the police. By this point, it was half past eight, quarter to nine-ish. And I was on my way to the police station. And I had, I had no mobile phone. I had no sort of way of communicating with anybody. I was sat in a, an interview room in a police station and I was questioned and interviewed for four hours that morning. All the while, my husband's body was being looked at, removed, taken to the mortuary at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And 2013, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow had not opened, but the mortuary department had. It was one of the first departments to open. So 
in that space of that morning, my husband's body was was lifted and moved and taken away um, because they decided that they had to do a post-mortem because it was a suspicious death. And all the while I was telling the policeman in the interview room that, no, it wasn't a suspicious death. It was just a, a young constable probably coming to his first death who just got his words muddled up. And they 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 were they were adamant they were going to go through their procedures. And what should have been a pretty straightforward doctor issue a death certificate, go to the undertakers and became a a, a day that I will never ever forget. And because it was the last day of work before Christmas, they were telling me that they would not be doing the postmortem until after the Christmas break. And I was and I was absolutely aghast at this because they had made the mistake. So I I got quite angry. I got quite sarcastic. I'm pretty good at being sarcastic. And I started to argue back. And I was I was using some of my, let's say my contacts in my corporate life because I I knew how to get hold of the BBC. I knew how to get hold of STV. I knew how to get hold of the journalists. I knew how to cause a fuss. And I was I was threatening them with that. I was threatening with them with this whole, if you want to make my life hell, I know how to make your life hell. And I will not sit quietly for you to trample all over this situation because some young constable made a genuinely honest mistake. And he knew he had made a mistake the minute he said the words and the, that ball started rolling down the hill. He knew he was mortified that he had made that mistake, but he could not take those words back. And he looked at me sheepishly that morning when the detectives arrived and they took my mobile phone off me. And he he knew, but I I got angry and I started to react and I started to to threaten them with that I would go to the press that I would that I would absolutely talk about how terrible this the way they were treating me and because not nobody ever asked me if I was okay nobody checked in and said I am so sorry that your husband has died they treated me like this suspect and it was a her an an horrific day and eventually they they took notice of what I was saying and around about six o'clock that evening so 12 hours after I had found my husband's body in our own home on our own sofa I was then being driven to the mortuary at six o'clock in the evening because I then had to go and identify my husband's body because of this procedure that had started I then had to formally identify my husband's body in the morgue and and it's an experience that I will never ever forget. And the TV cameras, the TV shows, those murder mysteries that you you see on the TV, the American drama shows, the hospital shows—it's all a pile of nonsense. It doesn't happen like that. I was expecting to be in a room and see my husband, 
or at least be able to see his body behind a glass in another room and actually see him. I was ushered into what I can only describe as a broom cupboard with no windows. And in in the corner on a, a bookcase was a, an old fashioned TV, like an old fashioned computer monitor screen. And the door closed, the intercom system came on and a lady said over the intercom, we're going to show you a picture on the TV screen. Can you please confirm that this is your husband? And up popped this grainy black and white image, like a CCTV image. And I had to say yes or no that that was Chris. And I say the words, all I wanted to do was run away. All I wanted to do was run out of that room and scream at somebody. So I said yes. The TV screen went off, the door opened, and I was escorted back out of the room again. And the policeman drove me back home. And that policeman who drove the car was the only policeman that I think had any ounce of empathy that day because he could see what a state I was in. And as he dropped me back to my house that evening, would have been about nine o'clock by this point, he said to me that he would personally find out when the autopsy was being carried out, post-mortem autopsy, and he would report the findings to me as quickly as he could. And and he was a an older gentleman, and I say older, maybe late 40s, and he just got it. He he kind of got it. I'm gonna hazard a guess he was married and maybe had kids. He he got this whole situation. So that was how that day unfolded. And I I was treated like the murderer of my husband. I was questioned for four hours as to whether I had caused him any injury. I was forced to go and identify my own husband's body who had died in his own house. And at 10 to midnight, there was a knock on the door and it was the same policeman. And he told me unofficially that the post-mortem had showed that Chris had died from a massive heart attack, that there were no suspicious circumstances. And I actually gave that man a hug at midnight that night because there was, there was going to be a bit of closure then. There was, there was an end to this nightmare that had started because they had found nothing suspicious. And I gave this man a hug and I thanked him for his honesty. I thanked him for coming out at midnight, the day, like the weekend before Christmas. And he, he just looked at me and he told me, do you know what? Everything will be okay. He didn't know me. He didn't know the life we had. He didn't know anything that was going on in my head or anything else. But he had compassion enough to say to me that everything would be okay. And I thank that man. I don't know the man's name. I've never come across this man before or since, but I thank him for being that beacon of compassion on a day when 
I just needed somebody to see things from my point of view. I felt like I was pushing against a brick wall that entire day. And when I think now, eight years on from that day, I look back and I think that's why I didn't cry. That's why I didn't grieve because I had to go through that shocking day, that nightmare of a day. And it still lingered on for days after because there were still procedures to be done. But I look back now and I think, what would have, if that hadn't have happened, would it have been different? Would I have cried and wailed and and broken down? Or would I still have been the strong woman that I was? And I don't know the answer to that. Of course I don't. But that man's compassion will stay with me forever because he had the awareness and the kindness in his heart to tell me that everything would be okay. And I'm going to leave you with that thought today because listening to stories like this can be really hard. Listening to stories like this can trigger you. And I know that. So if anything I've said today makes you want to reach out to me, please do. My door is always open. I would love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to listen to you. You can find me on Instagram. You can send me a message and I will answer it. But always remember, everything will be okay. Thanks for listening to a little snippet of my story today. If you'd like to know more, head over to Instagram at Life Chapters Pod and tell me your thoughts. Do you have a story to share? Are you brave enough to come here and share with the world what's on your heart? I would love to give you this platform from which to share your life story. Your life chapters are really important and every single one of you deserves to be heard. Thank you.